I want to talk tonight about the implications of what we discussed this morning regarding God's providence. We discussed it a little bit last time, and I want to follow up again tonight because this is such a crucial topic related to God's work in the world and His work in our lives. And I want to begin tonight by reading a quote from James Spiegel in this excellent book that's only a couple of years old, published in 2005, called The Benefits of Providence. The Benefits of Providence. And that's one of three books that I want to recommend tonight to you. It's a crossway book, James Spiegel. And in this book, on pages 13 and 14, he writes this, The doctrine of providence is a fundamental theological issue. The extent to which God controls the world is of vital importance both to our personal lives and to numerous related Christian doctrines. For example, one's doctrine of providence directly affects one's view of human freedom. This, in turn, influences the way one conceives of human responsibility. One's views on these issues also shape one's approach to God's relationship to human sin and suffering. And the doctrine of providence affects one's take on various moral attributes of God, including His wisdom, kindness, justice, mercy, and love. These are not trivial theological matters, but momentous issues that affect believers at a basic level." I want to take that particular quote tonight and ask a series of questions because that quote itself in very short form really does provide, I think, an opportunity for us to dialogue tonight on God's providence because in that quotation he gives a number of points that I think would serve us well as we ask the kinds of questions tonight on providence that I think all Christians ought to ask. For instance, one of the things he says, and I'll put it in the form of a question, is question number one. How does the doctrine of providence affect one's view of human freedom? Human freedom. How does the doctrine of providence affect one's view of human freedom? And then maybe we'll talk a little bit also about human responsibility. All right, let's start some dialogue tonight. Someone tell me in your perspective, from your perspective, how the doctrine of providence affects your view of human freedom. Who wants to take a stab at it? Uh, Human freedom in general. And then maybe we can try to divide between believers and non-believers. For instance, someone tell us what you think the doctrine of providence does in the area of human freedom for unbelievers. Now remember we said that providence has what I would call a twofold meaning. The first meaning is that providence itself is actually an English word coming from two different Latin words that really means to see beforehand to see in the future. But that's, of course, not just all that providence means. Providence also comes from 
that concept that I mentioned, I think, in the first message, and that was to provide or for making of provision. So it's not just God seeing down through the corridors of time what will happen in His world, but He also orchestrates what happens in His world in that He makes provision in His world for things to occur just as He wills, okay? So that's providence. So how does providence affect what you view human freedom to be, okay? Right here. Todd's going to give you the mic. Artie Hunt. Providence assures us that we cannot do anything that God has not ordained to come about. God, by all His authority over everything in the universe, including the human heart and the human mind, so directs everything to accomplish what He is, what He intends to accomplish. And yet, because He is greater than anything that we can think or imagine, He is able to cause these things to come about in such a way that we make decisions to do those things which we're going to do. We decide to uh, do any act or not do that act. We make that decision in our own mind, in our own will. And yet, because of His greatness, He has... He is overseeing all of that, bringing about by the way He causes every atom, every uh, ion in the universe to function. He so causes, He brings about in our mind and our will those things which He has willed to accomplish. Very good. Essentially what Artie is saying is that in God's economy, in God's world, as He orchestrates the universe, there is nothing that happens no random molecule out of place that God hasn't already designed and orchestrated to occur just as He wills. Now, having said that, that does not mean that people are robots, automatons, that they simply are doing uh, the acting out of a play as though they have strings and they are like puppets and that they're just simply doing what God is orchestrating without any human freedom whatsoever. You might see it like this. Within the realm of God's universe, His world, there is a certain amount of freedom, but within the freedom of choices made, it never goes against His sovereign plan. Okay? We talked a little bit about that last time, but that's a good start. All right? How about providence affecting human freedom for believers. Rob Bailey. With the issue of freedom, uh, just like so many of the doctrines of grace, it does give us freedom because God is so sovereign. And I think for the believer, uh, the fact that God is sovereign, the fact that that providence is such a a precious doctrine... uh, in so many different areas of our life, and so many different issues, uh, since we know God's precepts and we know His law, uh, in the area of providence, it gives the believer the, the freedom to dig deeper into God's character to find the things that please Him. It gives us the ability, and since we know that God is in control of everything, uh, when it comes to an issue of liberty or it comes to an issue of freedom for the believer to choose different things, Uh, the believer that understands the doctrine of providence uh, can really dig deeper into God's character to find one of... There may be two options that are good, 
but to find the one that most reflects the nature of God. And to do that, we have to be able to, uh, to be more intimate with his nature. So if you have five different choices or two different choices, uh, it gives us the ability to try to please God by knowing his nature and knowing which thing would please him more. Okay. Any other comments? What about God's providence as it affects human responsibility in general? Not just freedom, not just the ability to choose certain things, but the responsibility to obey. How does God's providence relate to that? We've often heard, especially from those who would not see things theologically from the perspective that we hold dear at the Bible Church of Little Rock, they say, well, look, if God's providence is as you say, then it seems to me that it takes away freedom, and often you'll hear the phrase freedom of the will, or it takes away responsibility because it implies that if God has orchestrated everything, if God has planned out everything, then things like my prayer life are unnecessary. The responsibility that I have for obedience is unnecessary because God is doing whatever He's doing, and so therefore it's not crucial that I obey. It's not crucial that I be responsible. How would you respond to that? How would you respond to that? How do you, how do you find the balance between living in God's world, following God's rules, looking for His providential care, and also endeavoring to be obedient or responsible. Billy Gay Viner. I had thought that I had become a Christian years ago, um, and like 1972, but I continued to skip along with one foot in the world and one foot in God's world, and I thought I was doing fine, uh, although things weren't going too well in either department. And uh, one night, coming back from my mother's house to work on a uh, cross-stitch that I was doing for Jim, I had asked him years before what his favorite Bible verse was, and he had told me Romans 12, 9 through 21. And I was thinking it would be something like Jesus wept. <laughs> and so for eight years, I worked on that cross-stitch piece. And um, this particular night in 1982, I had gone over to mother's... Uh, December, uh, December the 9th, to uh, finish it. And I got it almost finished and started home. It was getting late, so I started home. It was just a few blocks from my mother's house to my house. And uh, um, a young girl who was driving very fast in my lane hit me head on. And um, what I didn't know until much later, and this has all been relayed to me, is that I was in front of Orman Simmons' house, and um, the accident happened. The uh, paramedics couldn't get, uh, couldn't get any sign of life from me. And uh, Orman came to the scene of the accident, went across the street, and got a, uh, an anesthesiologist that lived over there and asked him to come out and see if he could get a, an IV started in this girl who had veins that coll rolled and collapsed every time you looked at him. And um, in, the, in the vehicle behind, and he did successfully, and they managed to uh, revive me then. And in the car behind mine at the scene of the accident was uh, a boy and his date for the evening. His date for the evening, as it turned out, was a, a nurse 
who worked in ICU at Baptist Hospital. And um, I didn't find out until just a few weeks ago that Kenny Sutton, I mean, Kenny, uh, Kenny, help me, Kenny Allison, um, was in charge of my case in the ICU. And um, after years of uh, surgical procedures, I was in a wheelchair for about four years. There were 28 surgical procedures. Gave me a lot of time. I was on my back in the hospital bed in my den. Jim took constant care of me. And uh, when you're laying on your back, there's only one way to look, and that's straight up. I had a lot of plans that were interrupted, and um, I got to spend a lot of time thinking. Uh, the people, we had just started coming to the Bible church, and I was just laid flat, flatter by the response to people who came and, and ministered to us, brought food to us, sang to us, uh, the whole nine yards. But I really thought I was in charge of my life, and I thought I was doing a pretty good job of it, and Jim thought he was too. And uh, Curtis's brother, Bill Thomas, came over to see us after I got home, and Jim was caring for me. He and Anita came over. and By this time, I had finished Jim's 12, 9 through 21 and framed it and hung it in the den. And Bill was sitting there, and he said, "Have you ever thought about the uh, uh, about the significance of the Romans 12:9 through 21?" And I said, "No. What are you What are you talking about?" And uh, he said, "Well, your accident was on 12:9, and you were unconscious for 21 days, and they didn't think you were going to live. Did you ever notice that?" And I said, <laughs> "No, I didn't. But that's the providence of God. Uh, sometimes He has to break His sheep's." leg to save their life and he truly did save me at that point um, I now know there was no way that I was saved in 1972 it was not until 1982 well actually 83 because I didn't wake up till January 83 um, the long sleep the deep sleep but that to me is the most significant exhibition of the providence of God. He wanted me. He loved me. He had his thumbprints all over me, and I was heading in every direction except toward him. Mm. And he loved me enough to really discipline me, bring me down, so he could lift me up. And I thank God I praise him for this. I would not have chosen to go through it, but I would not trade what I learned from it for anything in the world, nor would Jim. Mm. Think about how the providence of God relates to a situation like that or even a situation like prayer. Turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. This is, a, this is a passage where I think you can see both God's will being spoken of and our prayer life in two verses. 1 John chapter 5 verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him. That if we ask anything, and then what's the next phrase? According to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of Him. You see, that's talking about prayer. If we ask anything... And it's repeated twice, even in verse 14, 
we have the confidence toward Him that if we ask anything. And then verse 15, if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know, there's that confidence again, that we have the requests that we have asked of Him. Now someone says confidence, knowing, yes, if it is according to His will. Someone wrote this, the very act of prayer is properly humble and submissive. The point is not to conform God's will to mine, but to conform my will to His. See, it's almost like this. If you have God's will, and it's in this particular dimension between my two hands, and then you have my prayer life where I'm asking for something, and I might be here. The art of prayer is the opportunity for me as much as possible through the Word of God and through the experiences of my life to line up my will underneath His will so that the two are parallel. You might even say it like this. The whole of the Christian life is designed, this pilgrimage that we're on, is designed for us to continually move and shift our will, what we think is right in this world, underneath His will. And like Billy Gay's example, or we could think of Johnny Erickson Tata, someone who's gone through a horrific accident like that, but who would come through it and say, God actually touched me in a marvelous way because it moved me to a place of putting my will underneath His so that we were running on parallel tracks. Every prayer request you have, every dilemma of life is an opportunity for us to try to line up our will underneath God's will. That's how providence is affected by prayer, and that's how prayer affects providence. Like Charles Spurgeon said, prayer is the slender nerve that moves the hand of omnipotence. Prayer is the slender nerve that moves the hand of omnipotence. All right, question number two. What's the relationship between providence and human sin and suffering? This is a little bit more tricky. How does providence relate to human sin and suffering? We saw the Virginia Tech tragedy. We've talked about that. I opened up with an illustration this morning about the five missionaries who were killed by the the Aka Indians. How does God's providence relate to human sin and suffering? Someone want to take a stab at that? Prince Platner. Human sin, it appears to me, is in our DNA from the time we were born. So consequently, we didn't have anything to do with that. We inherited from Adam. And the suffering started when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. And so consequently, it had to come to a point sometime where God had to do something with it. And he did on the cross. And in the providence of all of that, I think I see in my mind that his providence is perfect because without it, there would be no hope. Anybody else? I made a few references as I read from that illustration about someone from Japan, someone from Africa who went into missionary service. Remember I read uh, that quote where someone, actually a young boy, 
According to that account of Elizabeth Elliot Grin, someone had written a letter, and that particular young man, what did it say, spent several days in his room and then came out and announced, I want to be like one of those missionaries. I want to give my life for Christ. You see God's providence working in a situation like that? Someone back in the back? Bob? I see in God's providence where sin is used to display gloriously his great love for us. We sin and he forgives. From the beginning of time, God planned that man would fall. And for years I questioned why that would be. Why would he go through all of this? Why would he send his son to suffer and die on my behalf? It can only be his love, his glory. Sin is part of God's providence. It's part of his plan that his love and mercy will be held up high. And that causes me to be humble. It causes me to repent quickly when I have caused pain and suffering through my sin. Very good. I want to go to two passages. One, of course, is very, very famous in this regard, Romans 8. But look at Romans chapter 5. This is one of the passages that I would go to that would help me understand how providence is related to sin or suffering. Notice Romans chapter 5, verse 3. And I think you can probably see how I'm going as we go through some of these dialogical opportunities to learn and grow and to apply the messages that we have on Sunday morning. And that is using, using our swords to try to find the answers from God's Word so that when you go through that experience, say, for instance, suffering, you'll be able to, to go to a passage. All right, Romans chapter 5, look at verse 3. Paul says, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. There's, there's that word. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces what? So, in answer to the question, how does providence, what God is doing in our world, how He orchestrates the world, how does it relate to human sin and suffering? Here it is. Suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So there is a great passage that shows us right from the Word of God how providence relates to suffering. And of course, Romans chapter 8 is the second passage that's so very familiar to us. We talked a little bit about it last time. Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. And what is that purpose? Verse 29, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. So, what is God doing when He providentially orchestrates our world and our individual lives within that world, He is conforming us to the image of His Son. And He does that by working all things together for good, including human sin, including suffering. Those are two great passages that you could go to in your mind when you think about how God is working 
in his plan for the sin and suffering of this world in general or in your own life. Okay, Romans 5 is a great, great passage. Here's what Paul Helm, this is the second book I want to introduce to you tonight. It's in a little series in InterVarsity Press called Contours of Christian Theology, and it's by Paul Helm, H-E-L-M, and it's called The Providence of God. It's a, it's a full-length book on this very subject of the providence of God, and it's very, very good. This is what he says in answer to this question number two, what's the relationship between providence and human sin and suffering? Quote, the evil that is being experienced, obviously he's implying in the world, is the result of the sovereign will of God. While the reality of the secondary causes, the immediate causes of the evil is recognized, the evil comes from God, not as evil, the vindictive affliction of a malicious tormentor, but from one all of whose ways are just and good. Not only can Christians believe in general that the evil is not purposelessness or the result of divine powerlessness or inactivity, but they also have some inkling as to the purpose of that evil. Now that is a great statement. Let me read it again. Not only can Christians believe in general that the evil, the evil of this world or even the evil that comes into your life, maybe a drunk driver who plows into you head on. Christians believe in general that the evil is not purposelessness or the result of divine powerlessness or inactivity, just the inactivity of God, but they also have some inkling as to the purpose of that evil. Yes, we have some inkling of the purpose of that evil. According to Romans 8.29, it is to conform us to the image of His Son. And God will use all of the events of this world, relentlessly so, to conform us to the image of Christ, regardless of what it is in your life. Maybe you've gone through a very hurtful, painful divorce. Maybe you have experienced the loss of a loved one that was equally painful. Maybe you have an unsaved spouse, an unsaved relative, a son or a daughter. Maybe you're experiencing the ravages of cancer in your body or you've known someone who you love deeply has died of a disease like that. All of those things and so much more are God's opportunities in our lives to draw us closer to Him, to recognize His work in the world, that He's not powerless, that there's not a purposelessness to what goes on in this world, and that God is not inactive. For us to believe as Christians that God created the world and that He stepped back and He's allowing the world to run its course, like deists believe, is to misunderstand what the Bible teaches regarding the plan and purposes of God. Now, does that mean we as Christians understand the plan and purposes of God? No. And I think that's why Professor Helm mentioned the idea that we have some inkling of what God is doing because we don't know all that He's doing in the world. But we can know something of what He's doing, that He's good, that He's powerful, that He has a purpose, and that He's conforming us to the image of His Son. All right, how about number three? What about providence and God's character? Remember in that quote that I read to you at the beginning, James Spiegel? He says, The doctrine of providence affects one's take on various moral attributes of God, including His wisdom and His kindness, Justice, mercy, and love. 
How does God's providence relate to God's justice? Jordan Ragg, who's visiting us for a time, Pastor Jerry Ragg's son. Uh, this is... This just reminds me of, um, as you're kind of going through Romans here, we, we've been doing the same thing in Florida, and um, it seems to me it's kind of headed towards the uh, can of worms that Paul opened up to the Romans in Romans 9, and talking about uh, God's sovereign choice. And uh, he opens up in uh, verse 11 saying that in order that God's purpose and election might stand, um, and he, he uh, not by works, but by him who calls, um, you know, God basically said, Jacob, I loved and Esau, I hated before either of them had done anything. And then later on, it says, What shall we they say then in verse 14? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I have compassion on whom I have compassion. And then goes on to talk about Pharaoh and how he hardened Pharaoh's heart over and over and over again. And then uh, verse 19, One of you will say to me, because I guess the Romans were champions at arguing, um, then why does God still blame us for... Um, who resists his will, but who are you, O man, to talk back to God? And what shall, oh, sorry, uh, shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me this? Does the potter not have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? And then it talks about, you know, vessels of mercy and vessels of wrath prepared for glory and prepared for condemnation. And um, But it just back to verse 11, the whole point is right there, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls. And that's God's righteous prerogative. Very, very good answer. Very good answer. In fact, look at Romans 9, the, the verse that he ended with, verse 22. Because in that particular verse, you can see how God's providence works its way out in both justice and mercy. Notice what it says. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? So clearly, in God's providence, He orchestrates the events of the world, ultimately, for instance, like with the illustration of Pharaoh, to display His wrath, to show His power. And then verse 23 in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory. So God in His providence, as the world events are orchestrated, as they come to be in space and time, God shows His power, the power of His judgment to someone like Pharaoh. And He also shows the the inexplicability of His mercy. How can you explain? It's beyond amazing grace. In fact, look at chapter 11, all the way almost to the end. If you see verse 30, it says, For just as you were at one time disobedient to God but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, the Jews, so, too, so they too have now been disobedient, the Jews, in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. In God's providential plan, He allowed the Jews themselves to stumble and fall. 
And out of their stumbling and falling came the salvation of the Gentiles. And once the Gentiles have all come in to faith in Christ, the Jews will be returned to by God, and then they will be saved. And according to verse 32, For God has consigned all to disobedience, that He may have mercy on all. God in His providence, in justice or mercy, orchestrates all of the plans of the world so that ultimately He may be seen in two ways, to dispense His power and wrath in judgment and to display His mercy and grace to the undeserving. And God is doing that every single day. Every time a person is saved, every day that a person comes to faith in Christ, it's because they've had the opportunity in the outworking of God's providence to see. Did you hear that illustration this morning where that that man was drowning in that ocean experience and he said, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. And God spared him. He remembered that quote from Jim Elliott, prepare when you come to die. And he says, I'm not prepared. And God in his providence allowed him to be rescued so that ultimately he could come to faith in Christ. That's God's providence. That's his plan. All right, how does God's providence relate to something like, oh, kindness, kindness? That, that too can cut both ways. And I've noticed that the right-hand side of the worship center are obviously the more godly because they are answering all of the questions. All of the folks on the left, the liberal side of the wing... The political party are not responding. I need someone over here. Oh, that's right. These are the heavyweight theologians. They already know all the answers to the questions. They're just waiting for you guys to catch up. (laughs) How does God's providence relate to kindness? Paul Hemline. I think it's relating to kindness, and as I reflected back on 9-11 and watched John MacArthur uh, interview with Larry King live, uh, these major events are glimpses of accountability to come, and it's God's way of saying every man is not in control of his life, and John always pointed them back to the proper response here is repentance and getting ready. And so I think these events that happen, whether it's 9-11, Virginia Tech, are opportunities for us to say God has given you a glimpse of judgment to come. And every man's accountable, and he knows not when that time comes, so get ready. And so that is an act of kindness even in a tragic event. That's absolutely right. Remember in the first message on the hidden hand of providence, I spoke about the the Tower of Siloam and how the people fell, or the tower fell on the people and they were killed. And Jesus' response, unless you too repent, you will likewise perish. I often, when I think of this concept of kindness, God's attribute of kindness and what it's to lead to, especially as we look in God's providential world, Romans chapter 2. Look at that with me. Romans chapter 2. Verse 2. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. And they're specifically in this context said to be passing judgment 
on others, unrighteously so. And then Paul says in verse 3, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Well, that is something to think about, as Paul Hamline said. When you think about the fact that every day of an unbeliever's life, think about you before you came to Christ, every day of your life as you woke up and you had breath, that was evidence of the kindness of God. That was evidence of the kindness of God that you were continuing to live. Like Paul says in the book of Acts, that in God we live and move and have our being. At any one point, if God were to will it so, if in His providential care of His universe, He said to any one person, judgment day has come. Remember the man in the Gospels who built the big barns and he had all of his produce and he was getting even larger produce and he said, ah, I think I'll build bigger barns. And it said, through the person of God, through his own voice, in the Gospel writer's hand, you fool, tonight your soul is required of you. Now who will own what you possess? See, the kindness of God is meant to lead us to repentance. That's how providence relates to kindness. That's how providence relates to mercy. We live, we flaunt, as it were, in the face of God, our fist, and we say, I will not serve you. That's what every unbeliever is doing. I will not serve you. And even for believers, the issues of obedience, the issues of love in response to God's grace. And if we don't respond with that love, if we don't respond by being kind toward others, then even the kindness of God, even as believers, God could providentially bring things in our life to show us you're not being kind. And He could show us that in manifold ways. All right, let me ask you, down even further in the funnel of application, how about God's providence relating to the fruit of the Spirit? That's where we really live. Someone... uh, Recite to me the fruit of the Spirit. Can you get them all for me? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. How does God's providence relate to those aspects of the fruit of the Spirit? How does God's providence relate to love? We talked about the attributes of God, His kindness, His justice, His mercy. How does it relate to our need to apply the fruit of the Spirit or have the outflowing of the fruit of the Spirit in in our life? Jason Palermo. Uh, God is our example in all of this. Uh, We can look to Him who is... Able, God is able to display His love in the midst of what we would consider tragedy. And likewise, we're called to follow uh, His example, Christ's example, Christ's pattern. We're to copy it. And He remains sinless, so we have a pattern we can look at and uh, consider. Scripture calls us to meditate on it, that 
we would not revile when reviled, that we would not offer threats, uh, but that would we would entrust ourselves to the Father. And I think you mentioned it last week when we look at uh, Genesis 50:20. It, it's so amazing how many chapters it took to finally get to that point where Joseph is uh, being judged wrongly, um, thrown in a pit, abandoned, and for years not seeing his family and uh, then thrown in jail. And then the guys who said that they were going to help him didn't <laughs> until uh, God's perfect timing came. And then the reason became known with time. And uh, God exalted him to a high place. And at, at the right time, we, we see that this was necessary for the house of Israel to come, for the Messiah to come. Um, so his... Suffering was not in vain, but it, it magnified God's faithfulness, his love, his compassion. And, and the more we understand that, the less we'll be troubled, the more we'll be able to entrust ourselves to God. And we won't have as many obstacles to bearing that fruit of the Spirit. I like the way he answered that question. I like, do you notice the first passage that he went to? Someone... Someone tell me what that first passage was when he talked about if we're reviled, we do not revile in return. First Peter chapter 2. That's the example of the Lord Jesus. You look at all of these aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, and all you have to say is, how did Jesus respond? What was Jesus' life like? That was the ultimate in the outflow of the fruit of the Spirit. That's Jesus Christ. And when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. He loved us all the way to the cross. He had a persevering love. And when you, when you think about that in terms of God's providence, what were the events in Jesus' life? There were many things that could have derailed him from his goal or his purpose. But he continued to persevere because he had a goal to love us through the cross. In your life or my life, if we are experiencing a lack of love, guess what God is going to do in His providential care to conform you to the image of His Son? He's going to put you in situations. He's going to bring scenarios in your life that will show you that your love is lacking. And He's going to show you that through events and circumstances and people and sermons so that you and I will be able to say to ourselves, you know, that's just another example that God has brought to me through the encouragement of that person, through a sermon, through my spouse, through my children, through my grandchildren, through some means that God is showing me that I'm not as loving as I ought to be. It's the same with joy, isn't it? If you're not having a joyful day, if you're not having a joyful Christian life, guess what God is going to do in your life through His providence? He's going to bring a circumstance, a situation, a passage, something into your life to show you the lack of joy that you have. That's how providence affects the fruit of the Spirit. That's how they are going to coalesce. That's how they're going to be brought together. Patience. You know the old line, Lord, give me patience, but hurry! If you come through 
a particular situation and you lack the patience thereof, guess what God's going to do in His providence? He's going to bring you situations in your life that will show you your lack of patience. Now, when he does that, and when you pass the test, or when you admit that you've failed the test, but you then regroup, redouble your efforts, and you begin to learn how to be more patient, guess what? The flow of the fruit of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit in your life, is going to touch other lives, and you're going to be growing, and you're going to become sanctified in such a way that you're going to be more conformed to the image of Christ, Romans 8, 29. That's what God does in His providence. He brings those things into our lives to show us where we fall short. Now, here's the great thing. Here's something that might help you in your Christian life. If you are traversing in the Christian life, you're walking the path, and you find that there's something that occurs for which the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin. It may be a lack of love. It may be joylessness. It may be a lack of patience, something like that, whatever it is, any aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. And as you walk the path of the Christian life and as you are convicted by the Holy Spirit that that's a sin, there is a major choice you have to make right at that moment. And that is this. I can either immediately accept the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, receive it, confess it, the Greek word confess, homologeo, means to say the same thing that God says about my sin. Lord, you're right. That is true. That is wrong for me to do. That's a wrong attitude for me to have. I should not be that way. I confess it to you. I forsake that sin. Thank you for forgiving me. It may even be that you have to go to others and say, please forgive me for that sin if it involved another person. And you've learned as a result what God is doing in His providence to bubble that up to the surface like we talked about last time. You see it, you recognize it, you're convicted by it, and you grow from it. Now that's what we want everybody to do in their Christian lives. But we also know that's not what everybody's going to do in their Christian life. At some point or other, there's going to be a person, you, you're that person, I'm that person, where, same scenario, we're walking the path of the Christian life, we're deficient in an area, we are convicted by the Holy Spirit, and instead of receiving it and confessing it, we reject the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. We reject it. We reject it either by saying, no, I don't agree. Remember, confession is agreeing with God. I don't agree. Or, because I sinned against so-and-so, either in this life uh, with, with God or with others, we'll say, nope, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to go to that person. I'm not going to say that I sinned. And then pride wells up within us, and we reject the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. Guess what God's going to do in His providence? He's going to bring more situations, more circumstances, more passages, more encouragements, more admonishments. Until, if you're really a Christian, you're not going to be able to live with yourself any longer. You're going to say, that is right. I should not have... have have eschewed, said no to, put away the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. I should embrace it. I should receive it. And I didn't. And therefore, I am out of it spiritually. And I've got to get back on track. Now, all of us go through those two kinds of paths. And it's not as though we all go through those kinds of paths 
intermittently. Sometimes we go veer far left and we really are out of it spiritually and we've got to get back on track. Well, the way to do that, confession, agreeing with God, confessing and seeking forgiveness where appropriate. And sometimes when we are truly walking in such a way that the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and we immediately see it, we immediately confess it, we immediately forsake it. That is a wonderful reality of the Christian life because you're so sensitive to your sin that you want to immediately confess anything between you and God or between you and someone else. See, every one of us are going to be along those two kinds of paths, but you want to be along the kind of path that even when you do sin, you want to immediately confess it, you want to immediately make it right, because there's no loss of the intimacy of your relationship with Christ. When you go along that path to the left, and you reject the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, then you become further and further removed from that intimacy. It's never that you're not in the light. It's never that. Because by very definition, according to 1 John, everybody who's a true Christian is in the light. That's just a synonymous way of talking about what it means to be a Christian. It's not that you're out of fellowship. The book of 1 John, again, when it talks about fellowship, talks about fellowship as a synonymous term with being a believer. It's, it's really not accurate to say, well, that person, they're, they're sinning, they're rejecting the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, and so they're out of fellowship. That's really not true. If you're a believer in Christ, you're always in fellowship. The question is, what kind of fellowship do you have? Do you have a close intimacy with Christ at this time? Well, if you're rejecting the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, you're not in close fellowship with Christ. You're far away from Him. And you know what he's going to do in his providence? Look in, at Hebrews chapter 5. Look at Hebrews chapter 5. And we'll, we'll show you what's going to happen in the case of that particular person. Hebrews chapter 5. This will, this will show us, this ought to motivate us not to reject the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. This ought to show us very clearly what we're to do. Excuse me, Hebrews chapter 4, chapter 4. First of all, verse 12 tells us what the Word of God does in our hearts when it challenges us. It says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and and intentions of the heart. You ever had that situation where either in a church service or your own quiet time or someone's encouraging you or you, you've been written a note of encouragement and Scripture comes to bear on your life and you're convicted. Your heart is pierced. That's what the Word of God is doing. It's convicting you of what you ought to be doing. It's living and it's active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword and it pierces to the division of soul and spirit. That means it goes down into the very, very internal areas of your conscience, of joints and marrow, and discerning your thoughts and your very intentions. Wow! That's incredible. That's what God is doing in His work in us. And there's going to be discipline. 
There's going to be discipline in the Christian life. We know that that's discipline because when we get off the path, God is going to convict us by that word and He's going to show us how we ought to respond. So you have the Word of God in your life. You have the Word of God piercing, showing you, in in fact, even verse 13, and no creature is hidden from His sight. This isn't just talking about the Word of God toward believers. It's talking about God's judgment Word, His His Word of, of judging. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. This is... This is what God does in our life. This is how we are supposed to respond to the Word of God. And when we do, we respond in such a way. Go over now to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. This is what God does in His convicting work. And this is how providence relates to that. Notice verse 4 that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted, verse 3, in your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him, for the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives." If you're a true believer, that means the Lord loves you just as His Son. You are His Son. You're His spiritual Son. And if you are off the path, then God will reprove you according to verse 5. He will discipline you according to verse 6. He will chastise every son whom He receives. And according to verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, all true believers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For earthly parents disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But He, God, God the Father, our loving Heavenly Father, He disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This is, this is a wonderful passage, Hebrews 4.12, talking about the Word of God being powerful, active, sharp. And when you're walking that path and you convict, you, you reject the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, you're going to be challenged. You're going to be chastised. You're going to be disciplined. And when you are, it is for the purpose of God providentially bringing into your life all of those convicting means of grace that He's going to use. Sermon, prayer, the Word of God, Examples of others, admonitions from others, whatever means of grace that God chooses to use to get you back on that right path. And He'll use whatever providential means at His disposal to bring that about. And He does it 
because of His love. Verse 6, For the Lord disciplines the one He loves. I'm so thankful for that discipline. I'm so thankful for the providence of God. I'm so thankful that He brings events and circumstances and situations into our life to show us the truth, to show us how far short we are falling, to encourage and admonish us in the ways that we ought to go. That's why when something happens in our life, whether it's something that we see that we're not necessarily touched by in terms of Virginia Tech, we certainly would be touched by it if it were here on one of our college campuses, but even that is another opportunity for God to show us how frail we are and how much we need Him and how much we need to respond to Him. Why don't we do this? Why don't you bow your heads with me? And I want to give you a couple of minutes tonight before we close for you to spend some meditative time asking for what God's purposes are in some of the trials that you're undergoing. What are some of the trials that God is working in your life at the current time? How are you doing in those trials? How are you responding? What's God's plan? Is He bringing to the surface some area of sin, some area of disobedience for which you need to be reproved by this gracious, loving, disciplining Father? Spend a moment or two pondering what that is. Maybe you know it very well. You've been rejecting the convicting work of the Spirit. Submit to the Spirit tonight. Holy Father, thank You for challenging us tonight through Your convicting work, the convicting work of Your Spirit. Lord, thank You for catching us up short. We want to grow We don't want to reject the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We know that we sin in particular areas, and Lord, maybe there's one main area for which we've been fighting You and rejecting Your convicting work. And we don't want to do that, Lord. We want to be changed, and we want to be different. And we've been battling this besetting sin and we want to be rid of it. 
Lord, may You make us so much more sensitive to our sin. To recognize Your convicting work. And to do so in a way that would bring Your pleasure and not Your chastisement. But Lord, even if You discipline us, as every son, legitimate son, will be. We pray, Lord, that You would use Your Word, Your powerful double-edged sword to shape us and cut us so that we might respond rightly to You and to those around us. Oh, Lord, I thank You for Your providence and for bringing a sermon, a friend, a word of Scripture in a quiet time, uh, through our prayer life, through the admonishment of a brother or sister in Christ to show us our sin and to give us the opportunity to grow and to receive that convicting work and to confess it to confess it as sin and to seek to make right relationships that have been damaged, especially our relationship to You, Father. Lord, I pray that we would profit from these times. I thank You for the opportunity to be here together tonight. May we continue to think of what You're doing in our lives, especially as You mold and shape us and You rid us of our remaining sin. We pray that You would grant us victory in those areas where we are most weak so that we might honor You and glorify You. In Jesus' name, Amen. One last book that I want to mention to you that I think is probably the most practical And the most readable on the area of providence is R.C. Sproul's book, The Invisible Hand. The Invisible Hand, subtitled, Do All Things Really Work for Good? Very readable. I think it would be a great impact on you as you think about God's providence in your life.